the Sluts and Scholars. Want to hear more? Follow us on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Sluts Scholars, or check out slutsandscholars.com. Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars, where we talk smart and fuck smarter. I'm Nicoletta. And I'm Simone. And this week, we are joined by Dr. Hernando Chavez, who holds a BA in psychology from the University of California in Santa Barbara and an MA in marriage and family therapy from the University of San Diego. He also holds a doctorate in human sexuality from the Institute of the Advanced Study of Human Sexuality. That is so many degrees. He's also, uh, as a licensed therapist, he specializes in working with sexual minorities, intimacy and relational difficulties, and sexual concerns or dysfunctions. Dr. Chavez is a psychology and sexuality professor at Orange Coast College and Pepperdine. He's presented at various academic institutions, including Cal Lutheran, uh, CSU Long Beach, NYU, USC, USD. He's at conferences like ASEC and Catalyst Con and SHE, and he's the Western Region past president for the Society of Scientific Study of Sexuality. Your bio is so impressive. I could probably be talking for like 30 more There's seconds. There's a lot of acronyms in there also. But like, you're amazing and welcome. Well, thank you. Um, and I also like to go to the beach and uh, watch Family Guy. Ooh. What's your favorite Family Guy episode? Oh, my, everyone. I mean. <laughs> Never have I ever seen a full episode of Family Guy. Really? No. All right, well, Never we'll get have? on it. Cartoons anyway. like fuck with my head. Mm. Like they make it hurt. I liked Big Mouth though. Have you watched Big Mouth? No. Is it like Angus Did Fong's Big Mouth? Snogging? I don't know the names of every episode, so you're actually the no, bigger big, fan? The, the show, oh. Big Mouth. No, I haven't seen that. Okay, Big Mouth is on Netflix, and it's done by Nick Kroll, and it's about um, he's adolescence. A he's a Georgetown alum. It's awesome. You should all watch oh, it if I you care about, about sex. This. I think I have heard about it. But so you're also considered like an expert on sex in the field because you've written for like Sexpert and Ask Men um, and like Vice and Maxima and all this stuff. So we're coming to you for advice and chat and expertise, right? Yes. Can't wait. So in your bio, you talk about working with sexual minorities. What does sexual minority mean to you? Sexual minority was a term I first heard from my MFT supervisor. Uh, his name was Dr. Winston Wilde. And um, what, I, what I believe is sexual minorities, and I think people have different definitions, but uh, for me, it's, it's individuals who have a, uh, a component to their sexual identity that's uh, non-dominant, so it's not a part of the dominant culture necessarily. So when you think of someone who's heterosexual or somebody who's monogamous, those to me are more so the dominant culture of what the expectations are sexually mm-hmm. um, from a sexual identity perspective. So a sexual minority would be, would be people that are in more of the minority, the, uh, a less sort of common um, sexual uh, uh, identity components like or orientation, gender identity, relational configurations, their sexual behaviors and expressions. Um, so really it could be anybody from somebody who's gay to somebody who's into fetishism to somebody who's trans to somebody who's non-monogamous. I mean, those hmm. are some of the, the I guess, the uh, most common sexual minority uh, individuals. Do people who are sexual minorities often have trouble finding a therapist that really understands what it means to be that? or provide sufficient support for that kind of situation? Absolutely. Um, One of the questions that I ask prospective clients over the phone or if in our, in our first uh, session or two um, is what their experiences have been with previous therapists. And typically I'll hear things like judgments or uh, people having sort of opinions that uh, uh, felt shameful or felt sort of degrading. Uh, I'll give you an example. I had a phone call yesterday from a prospective client and she said that uh, she identifies as being monogamous but has a partner who identifies as being non-monogamous. So they're trying to navigate and make that work together. Mm-hmm. And her first session with a, a new therapist um, um, the therapist basically said, so what you're saying is that 
you're monogamous and they're not monogamous, and so you're okay with being cheated on. And that was sort of the the zinger that this client Whoa. felt really judged. Do you still have to pay for a session like that? Yes. That's a good question. <laughs> but I you mean, shouldn't have to. I, I would kind of want to walk out and not pay a person. but Because some... I know a lot of people who have shitty experiences with therapists in the first session or the first couple of sessions. Like therapists that do like really egregious shit, like victim blaming for sexual assault or like judging things for sex. And, and right. I feel like if, if any other kind of service, you'd be like, I'm not paying for that. How does that work? Yeah, I mean, in those first few sessions, I'm just trying to get to know you, trying to establish a rapport, gather information. I'm asking a lot of questions, but absolutely, am I not making interpretations or judgments or opinions or anything like that that's going to be sort of, in in my opinion, it's kind of like, it's kind of know-it-all-y, arrogant and narcissistic to be able to just tell somebody about their life or their mental health in that first few minutes. Yeah, when you just met met them them and you don't know anything about them. Right. Mm. You got to stay curious. I mean, I think in terms of having to pay for it, it's like an ethical component of what we've agreed to to our, I'm not licensed yet, but Dr. Hernando is, but is setting the fee before you meet with someone. And so if you're agreeing to have like a free first session, they wouldn't have to pay. But I would imagine most people don't give refunds unless there's some like, random clerical thing mm. where you thought they weren't going to be out of town and they had told you they were. But I, it is interesting because... I think on, that's a really fucked up thing. <laughs> well, it, it is weird because we, we are like providing, I guess, a, a service, but we don't always treat it like customer service because we're like protecting our own boundaries and helping other clients learn boundaries better. Right. And at the same time, I mean, I think there 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 is some ethical flexibility. And what I mean by that is, let's say a client agrees on a fee and then they lose their job. I, I think right. it's it's important for us to address that with clients and maybe even renegotiate. Um, you know, sometimes people uh, hit like a financial sort of a, a low point in their life. And, and do you really want people to have to have extreme anxiety with their payment and, on top of the anxiety or the struggles they're experiencing with their, their mental health or their, their, their concerns? Yeah. So I think that's a really important I think therapy can be really expensive and, and, and the cost of it can be uh, really, really scary for people, especially if you start therapy while you're in a financial position where you can afford it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess as therapists, both of you, is that a, a common thing that you've had with clients and is that a, a normal and appropriate thing to bring up with your therapist? Like, hey, I'm struggling financially and I still need to be here, but I don't know if I can keep paying. How, how does that work? Personally, I love it. It, that that tells me that you have you, you're taking care of your needs. You're being assertive. You're also trusting that I'm going to be able to to uh, with um, be able to handle it and sort of hold that space with you. And um, I have a lot of respect for people that do it. And, and generally speaking, uh, I want to go with their uh, uh, with that conversation, and I want to do what the best I can to support them on it. So if we need to renegotiate the fee, I think that's that's part of our ethical um, uh, uh, in, uh, obligation is to for not continuity abandon of care. And continuity of care. And also, too, I've heard some therapists talk about like if clients go on vacation and they start talking about their own income sort of taking a dip. And in my heart, I'm thinking, get out of this profession. Go be a stockbroker. Go go into politics if you got if you're you know if, if it's all about you or if it's about your sort of uh, bank statement. Mm. I think that's why a lot of supervisors I've been with have encouraged if you're just doing like private practice work to get an additional job because otherwise you're clinging. I don't know what you think about this, but otherwise you're clinging so tightly to like folks showing up. And so maybe you're not able to provide the highest level of service if you're just focused on the money. But of course, like, it is still a job. Like, your time is worth something. Um, Definitely. But like, for example, I'll, I'll give you an example, and you tell me if you think the money should have been given back. So I had a client who um, had already no-showed for one session, knew they were going to be charged. 
Um, and in sessions, we've had talked about um, that's something they tend to do when they're like done with something, whether that be working out or therapy, that they will just stop showing up. And so I was wondering if that was happening. And then we confirmed uh, the next session, um, and I had just been coming back from vacation, and so I had confirmed again at the beginning of that week, you know, we're starting up our regular things, and then they no-showed again, and I charged them for that session. And they came back and said, um, even though they had confirmed it, they said, oh, well, you know, I, I, uh, I don't want to be coming to therapy anymore right now, so, like, could you refund the money? No. No, but, you, you like, if you were working that. at a restaurant and someone made a big deal and was, like, pushing you and pushing you, you might be inclined to be like, sure, let me get you a, a free dessert or let me, you know, whatever, I'll treat <laughs> yeah, you to your entree. Point, but there is no equivalent of that. Right. So I'm saying, but it's, it's definitely, a, for me at least, it's a case-by-case. Case. I don't know about you. Like, I've had a therapist who was, like, kind and, like, waved a no-show fee because I'm, like, very, like, part of the reason that I have gone to therapy is I'm, like, very, very forgetful and, like, all over the place. So I have, like, literally just forgotten to go. And I have had the no-show fee waived. See, I would never do that for someone who says that they're forgetful, especially it was, if it was happening multiple times because no, it it's, once. I think it, but I'm saying if it's, to me, it would be a teaching point and then something we could revisit in session where it was like, yeah, it sucks. You have to pay this. I know this is a thing you're working on, but like life has consequences. I'm more passive aggressive. The next session, I'll just forget to show up to and then teach them a lesson that way. No, Wait, I'm, really? I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Fucking cunt. <laughs> just kidding. But it's so, like it's different from therapist to therapist. You know, shit happens. Uh, I think you it, try to be understanding. Much, I think it also depends on how much the patient is paying out of pocket. I was on Medi-Cal and I was paying nothing yeah. per session, but then for a no-show, then it was supposed to be $70, which when I was on Medi-Cal, that was a very significant amount of money. I don't know. Wow, that's yeah. a big no-show fee. Wow. And and depending on like how many times they've no showed, like if this is if they're always on time, always pay on time, and like okay, shit what does happens, being on time matter if I'm paying you for the hour? What do you think? Again, I'm pretty flexible. Like you're paying me for that hour, so if you show up 15 minutes late, you know um, that's that's your prerogative. That's on you. Yeah. And I have a lot of clients who are in the entertainment industry mm -hmm. or CEOs, and they they just. Uh, they're running behind. And so uh, we'll talk about it, but I don't necessarily make it um, a huge issue, but I will bring it up. I mean, it's important to at least address it. But yeah. it's, it's their dime. Totally. I mean, I'm, I wouldn't not see them, but to me, I'm saying like I would potentially waive the fee for someone who was like committed to therapy and I knew that like they just fucked up this one time yeah. and they're a human being versus like if it was a continued happening. Yeah. Thanks for ask, answering all my questions about <laughs> we all want to know what our therapist thinks and we can't ask them because they're so fucking secretive. But that should, I don't believe that that should be it either. Like to me, if that stuff is coming up and I'm having a reaction to it of sorts, I think it's so important to talk about it with the client. I think the hope is that if it's a money thing and they can't pay anymore that they'll bring it up. Um, but if it's like an attendance thing and it does seem to be getting in the way, I might bring it up and be like, hey, I'm noticing that um, you come to session late a bunch and like I get it like life happens sometimes it's hard to get like LA there's a lot of traffic but mm -hmm. I'm wondering if anything else is going on um, about wanting to be here so thoughtful but I think you should talk like if if your therapist is secretive to me that's 
they should be no, blank and somewhere. No, I'm just a boundary and like always ask personal questions. Uh, and then you're upset <laughs> that they don't tell you all the well, things. Well, yeah, and then I like take the little morsels that I get and I'm like, ha gotcha. Uh. <laughs> I'm like a very bad patient. I like, <laughs> I needed a, I'm about to move to New York so I asked for a referral for another therapist and, and she was like, I don't really know anybody in New York and I was like, okay, well, what should I look for in a therapist? She goes, you definitely need someone smarter than you. <laughs> Otherwise, you will not be happy. <laughs> so that was like an interesting thing. Someone who won't, who will like be up to speed or who you think is smarter than you. I don't know. How do you decide what kind of clients you're going to take? Um, I try to take only sexuality clients. Um, mm. they, they may have some aspect of sexuality in, in their case, and that's what, uh, to me, that's what I'm most passionate about. So I don't take clients that are that don't have some component of a sexual concern, uh, an alternative relationship, or identity component. Um, and th- but then again, people who are, let's say, let's say I, someone identifies as kinky, they may not have any issues with being kinky, but they may have some struggles with anxiety or depression. So I'll still work with them um, because I think they do need somebody. Because they're still cool. Well, they're still, they still need somebody who can understand and support and, and not be judgmental about their their lifestyle, but at the same time, there's still a mental health component. So, mm. yeah. How did you decide that you wanted um, sex and sexual minorities to be a focus in your therapy? This trips people out, but I, uh, I used to be a child therapist, so I worked with kids. Um, Me too. And I did it for about three years. It was really wonderful. The kids are amazing. I love doing play therapy, and you could be so creative, and you can do all these fun things with mm-hmm. them uh, outdoors and, and uh, with, with art and so on. But the parents were really difficult. Parents were often very resistant, oftentimes pointed all the uh, uh, attention towards the children and, and you know said that they were the reasons why things were going wrong and things were bad. And um, I just didn't – it was difficult to see a lot of change because of resistant parents. And then I started getting burnt out, like – the truth is, is that uh, in the therapy world, there's a lot of um, um, there's an unfair balance, I think, with with being an intern because there's a lot of pressure put on you to get your hours to work at these clinics that sometimes pile up your caseloads and and it's and not, part of that includes having to get like child or family right or child. couples hours yeah and then they don't pay you very well so I know a lot of uh, interns just it's they struggle and I did too and um, finally I just said you know what. Maybe this isn't for me. Like, uh, it, it, I'm getting more like depressed about this. I'm getting kind of like, in, like I could just feel like isolation coming on. I could feel like I wasn't really enthusiastic mm. about life. I was about to leave therapy, and then uh, I just started looking for other possibilities. And strangely enough, I was watching a movie like on TNT or TBS, and it was uh, Meet the Fockers. And I remember seeing Barbara Streisand doing her like zany, kooky, like uh, uh, geriatric yoga, like in the nude, kind of like, you know that part? That I literally, her, her... I'm, I'm freaking out because <laughs> you're literally describing like part of my trajectory. Yeah. And so <laughs> I just like, is that really a thing? Can you do that? Because she looks happy. And like, and so I looked it up online and there were some schools that did uh, uh, schooling. And at the time, my dad was uh, going through some medical issues. So I thought, great, I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to redirect my focus to sexuality, help out the family with uh, the medical issues. And it was like the perfect transition. Now I'm so happy, so passionate, so excited and happy about education and conferences and teaching and, and doing therapy. I mean, it's, it's it, they say make, uh, make your work your passion and I love sex. So I might as well, you know, kind of integrate that into my professional life. Yeah. I have heard that from so many people that the trouble about working with kids is that they come with parents. Yeah. So it's not just necessarily. Kill them. You just work with orphans. <laughs> oh my God. I did work with uh, foster sorry, kids, I, by the way. So, <laughs> I'm so sorry. But it, yeah, I resonate with that because it's like the kids often are great to work with, but 
it's tough to feel like you're making progress when the rest of their systems aren't on board for the work. Right. Whether it's their school or their parents, like that's exhausting. What if the kids are on board for the work? I know I saw I saw a therapist when I was a kid, and I was such a little shit. I'm sure I was. What a if the shit kids too. are what? What if the kids like? What if the kids don't want to do the work? They don't. Sometimes, I mean, a lot of the times they don't. But if you can make it creative and interesting, so and exasperated by my I used to do things like watch movies with them, and we do like movie therapy, where the theme of the movie would then be sort of brought into session, and it had it emulated their life. We would do. I would take resistant kids to the basketball court and I would like make them bets like, okay, if, if I beat you at one-on-one or if we play horse and every time I make a shot and you miss, you answer a question and yes. they would agree to it. I did that too. And they didn't know I could ball, so oh, I kicked their awesome. ass. And all of a sudden they're ask, <laughs> they're like answering questions. We were I just, want that kind of therapy now. <laughs> I know, I'm wondering like, why can't we do that with adults more? I think there's the, uh, this is probably a big conversation, but I think there's this um, illusion of professionalism and also a traditionalism that uh, psychology has had where we have to be these distant wearing a suit you know uh, turned around no eye contact and you know almost like in a different uh, space sort of professionals and I just like think a that, sterile space yeah and I think that that can be a little bit um, distancing when it comes to creating those relationships I, I actually find that the more uh, engaged therapist, the more sort of real and authentic therapist um, the, the more it sort of brings the client into that space too of being themselves authentic. What kind of uh, clients, I know you've, you've talked about your focus on sexual minorities, but uh, as much as you're allowed to share, I'm curious about kind of the more out there reasons that people might come to you. When you say out there, what do you mean by and that? I don't mean that in a, ju- in a judgmental space. I mean things that people might not know about as a, as a thing that another like human being problem. can experience. Got it. Um, you know, people come for all different types of things. So... Um, Generally, what I usually will see are are male sexual concerns and uh, male-identified individuals with with male bodies, um, mainly because I think that there's a comfort level with with having a, a male therapist. Mm. A lot of a lot of times, it can be challenging for uh, a female to see a male. You know, depending on the issue, if there's a history of coercion or assault or abuse. Oh yeah, I can't see male. Therapists. It can be difficult. Yeah, so I, I find men sort of gravitate towards me. Um, and typically because I leave things like my social media open and I do that on purpose just to show the kind of person of who I am. Um, people will gravitate towards me because they'll see me at like a kink event or like a, a sex worker event, or they'll see I'm doing some advocacy for the gay community. And so that sort of helps people see that, okay, this person does care about my community or this people, this person does uh, at least have some investment in, in, in the work that they're doing. But, uh, you know, some of the most rewarding cases are the ones where people come in they're really sheltered and hiding who they are and what they want and what they want to create in their life. And you just see this like beautiful blossoming of like a person who's afraid to admit their fetish to then saying, finally expressing it to then like, you know, finding like a erotica or porn that they can masturbate to it. And then all of a sudden they want to find a partner and eventually they meet somebody, but they're afraid to tell them. And all of a sudden they do tell them and then the partner accepts them. And all of a sudden, like you see this incredible <gasps> growth and all of a sudden they're like dating somebody and they're u- utilizing their fetish in this way that like they've never dreamed of. And it's so rewarding to see that, like you're witnessing that. It's like play by play. Oh, I, that's so awesome. Yeah. I don't know if it's hard for you, but it's definitely hard for me sometimes when people come in and there's so much shame about something that I've already been exposed to and know that people like love and do together mm-hmm. and that there's a community out there. Like but, what? Um, what? Like like kink? Like um, people who identify as heterosexual men who like to dress in women's clothes. Mm. And they're like, "There's, you know, this is so shameful. There's no one out there. I'm never going to find anyone. And how do I include this in my relationship? And then I have the privilege of having been exposed to 
relationships where that looks awesome and beautiful and fun mm -hmm. and like holding that excitement until they feel ready to like go there but knowing that like their life could look so much happier oh you're not like well just so you know place. there's events and you can do this that's like you oh, don't no, tell you know, them I, I tell them that eventually you get there but yeah. not from the get go like if someone comes to you with like a deep shame fetish you don't say hey you're not the only one like from the get go I think you do a little bit of both. I think you do have to work with the internal phobic responses. So if somebody has some shame or guilt and it's internalized, you do have to sort of um, help them come to terms with that, maybe undo some of that, let go some of that. But at the same time, you're integrating that important uh, notion of creating community, of eventually externalizing this, of finding outlets and other individuals to share this with because you know we're, we're doing a combination of, I think, challenging but also normalizing. And I think that that's just the, uh, the, the, the dance that you do in therapy is trying to balance you know, those external and internal worlds. I've, I've had the struggle where I think sometimes I've been too sex positive. I don't know if you've ever had that, but I think when someone that I've had came in and their narrative was so um, ingrained in them and so shame-based. And if I immediately went to a place of like, oh, no, this is fine. There's lots of people doing that. Sometimes they would be resistant because like this has been something they've been holding on to for so long. And to tell yeah. them, it's like saying like, I have a head and me being like, no, you don't have a head. And like, it just would like fuck up their whole like <laughs> way I have of living. <laughs> no, you don't. I do. <laughs> You're saying. Yeah, and I think we have to also be mindful of um, they have an identity, and the only way to sort of shift and change the identity is to sort of replace it with a new identity and, and a new story. You could think of maybe narrative therapy in a sense of rewriting that script or that story. But if we immediately sort of like remove and pull the rug out from under them, the, the identity that they've been leaning upon that has helped them sustain to get to where they are today and not replacing it with something else, um, then uh, sometimes people can feel really uh, uh, unmoored. Yeah, just sort of bared and and uh, emotionally sort of um, unprepared for that sort of that that sort of comment. So we just have to be mindful of of being supportive and empathic and nurturing, but at the same time, you know, challenging and um, helping them to sort of face some of these fears. You mentioned that um, you feel like a lot of male or prospective male identifying clients are attracted to come work with you, and we've talked a lot about on the podcast about um, pressures and performance things for mm. female bodied people. And I would love to know maybe some of the common um, struggles that you've seen for your clients with penises. Sure. Um, so that if, identifies if, men. What? If, Who identifies? Yeah. Men? Right. Or even just clients with penises. You know, I think I think performance anxiety happens to us all, and it's going to be expressed differently both in the mind and also in the body. So regardless of our bodies, our genitals, or, or who we are, I mean, I think that we all have uh, fears and insecurities and experiences that can shift the way we think and, and approach sex. Um, most people, I find, have body image concerns. So that's something that, that seems to come up a, a lot uh, that we don't realize maybe uh, men experience is uh, um, whether it's about their penis, whether it's about their the shape of their body that's changing, whether it's about uh, the comparison effect. I see this social comparison happening a lot, whether it's comparing themselves to models, comparing themselves to porn, comparing themselves to sort of... Um, anybody else but themselves and then seeing themselves as inferior and they're, they're creating this, this uh, um, I guess you could say a, a mindset and identity that they're not good enough. And, and mm -hmm. I, I find that that happens. Uh, sometimes with performance anxiety, we have a lot of cognitive issues that, that occur, uh, like cognitive distortions. You know, we magnify situations, we catastrophize, we uh, filter the negative uh, uh, portion of the experience and then we hold on to that and make that much more grand. Um, 
you know, we also do things like create negative feedback loops where we take a negative detail or we take a negative experience and we replay it over and over and over until we ingrain it so that this, this, our mind is now sort of wired to believe that we cannot do something or we are a failure or we're not uh, successful. And, and I, I do try to get people away from this idea of failure and success. Um, one of the things that I think people struggle with with performance anxiety is that they oftentimes have a very goal-oriented, penile-centric, intercourse-focused, orgasm-centric uh, mentality with sex. And I always ask them, like, what do you want to get out of sex? And it's always about achievement. Mm. And what are they? Do you what listen are, to our podcast? <laughs> <laughs> but you're saying it from the other perspective. Right. We're often talking about a frustration um, for people with penises who are like just going to that goal-oriented thing. And mm-hmm. I guess for for people with vulvas too. But like, what is the goal? Like to come to be the best in bed out of all the people this person had sex with. Like, what are those things? I've, I've, I've come to, to terms with people are going to have expectations. So even if they say they don't have goals, they're going to have things that they expect from themselves and from mm-hmm. partners and from the sexual experience. I think it's pretty, it's unrealistic to, to, to think that we're all going to sort of negate all of that sort of, uh, 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 that negotiation in our head. But I think I've found that pleasure and anxiety-free sort of experiences can be something we can all sort of work towards. That you can have fun and create pleasure and create joy and create sort of, it could be filled with humor or, or, or uh, uh, sensation. I mean, that to me is pleasure. And then the anxiety-free. Can I create a space where I can feel light and playful and I don't have to put a lot of pressure on myself or my partner? And if anything, you know, if I want to talk about something, it can create like a, a pressureless sort of communication after the fact or even sometimes during but to me, if I can just reduce anxiety and create a relaxed environment and then just focus on pleasure and sort of the enjoyment, I find that everything seems to work out for the most part. How do you help people get to that space? Mm. I think you have to chip away. Um, a lot of their, uh, they have a narrative that they've created for themselves, for the world, for uh, uh, partners, for sex itself. So you have to really uh, address each of those and try to sort of challenge and in my opinion, sort of do a little cognitive restructuring for people. Do you have an example of a narrative that might exist and like how you would do that restructuring? Uh, let's say for a, let's say a, an early ejaculation case. Let's say someone, you know, uh, it's often called pre- premature ejaculation and, and some people... Why do you call it early ejaculation? Eh, sometimes people feel premature. It makes them feel sort of a, like, you think of like a, like a baby, like a pre- like premature birth, or you think of mm-hmm. sort of like a... Like uh, infantile? Infantile, yeah. Hmm. So early is like, okay, I can people have their own sort of... Uh, yeah, Nicoletta, you say coming before you want to. Is, is That's the way I like heard what is preferred is coming before you want to. So like if you said, if you can restructure this thought to be like, oh, my goal is pleasure and I, my partner's already pleased, maybe there won't be a problem if you... Don't take very long, or only last you know thirty seconds to a minute, or whatever. (laughs) It is what (laughs) so unlasting only a minute. (laughs) Yeah, because some people don't even care about penetration. It depends on the day. But that's really interesting. You said that because what men perceive and what women perceive, and I know I'm speaking sort of in a heterocentric uh, uh, example here. they oftentimes are looking at it from their filter and their lens and they don't see it from their partners. Like a lot of men feel like they should be lasting 20, 30, 40, 50 minutes. I know, minutes. and I'm like, none of us want that. And if you pound me with a penis for an hour, I will shoot you. <laughs> <laughs> so we have different I mean, sort of expectations. I mean, unless maybe I'm like really into yeah. it. 
Which happens in a blue moon, literally a blue moon. Yeah. But changing that expectation. Sure, I think that's that's great communication right there for people, regardless of gender or orientation, to be able to discuss like what you really want, what really creates pleasure for you, and then we can do it. And you know, I've had conversations with people where they're like, I don't really ejaculate or come with partners, so I usually have to finish myself off my hand, but I feel really guilty about saying that or doing that in the moment. And mm. I think you have to own that if that's... Sort of like, oh, that that's your preferred way Share of doing that it. That's your that. most reliable route to orgasm, as Dr. Lori Mintz would say. Yeah. And I think that's a great, really great point, is that we have this idea of, like, what is the best way to come, which I think we have talked about for people with vulvas, and, like, for some reason there's this hierarchy of orgasm with, like, a vaginal orgasm because of penis penetration is, like, the I- orgasmic ideal. And then and coming together the because of your partner. And coming together because of your partner with their dick inside you and then is on the top and, like, all the way down the bottom is, like, uh, like, like a vibrator on your clit, right? For some reason, we, we think those are unequal, and so I can see how that would apply for men, too, because I guess some men— I mean, I know some men, like, it's difficulty. It's difficult sometimes to achieve orgasm during intercourse. Um, yeah. I know you said that you're, the perspective you were just giving is somewhat heterocentric, and I wonder if this struggle is just hetero- heterocentric or at least cisgender-centric in nature because folks who are maybe more on the spectrum mm. around sexuality or queerness— May have a more open mind to creative. Ooh, because the norms aren't the, the norms aren't so strongly set, or they don't have norms in other areas. Like they like. have to be creative. Yeah. Well, I think you have a, a a rejection of norms and a conformity of norms within these these different communities you just described. And I think there's a lot more focus in queer communities to reject what is expected or norm the norm because um, they have grown up with that sort of mentality that that's part of the way that we survive, thrive, and even uh, grow is that rejection of norms. Whereas I find in the, in the, the the more dominant culture to conform is how you oftentimes uh, find a lot of that uh, uh, of, of the self and, and you get a lot of that sort of reinforcement. Yeah. I think there is this school of thought where more um, liberal like sex therapists now will say like, oh, it doesn't matter if you're an early ejaculator, like it's about accepting your body and owning that. And then I think there are still some people out there who are like, okay, but if I do want to last longer, what do I do? I think that at, this is just my own perspective, and, and this may rub people the wrong way in our field. I think you do a little bit of both. I think I want to de-emphasize sort of that rigid focus, that pressure that you know that we put on to lasting longer or having an erection. Or, um, but at the same Which time, which in turn may help you last longer if you're not focusing on it. Right. Right. <laughs> But then I think that if people want to work on aspects of their bodies, um, I, I feel like we should be allowed to and we shouldn't be shamed for it. Oh, or, for sure. You know, if people want to, uh, uh, if they want to lose weight for health reasons, great. If they want to work on their uh, uh, sexual technique, great. I think that's wonderful. So I do think that there's a space for both to coexist. I don't think we have to pick one or the other. Working on sexual technique, what is that? Are you talking about like delaying your ejaculation if you don't want to come, or like that could be just one. like practicing thrusting? Like, what does working on your sexual technique mean? Sorry. I'm like, well, doing I know. Is that how you do it? <laughs> but like, Put your foot over your head. head. Well, spread your legs. Let's say, for example, uh, somebody who ejaculates early. Um, you know, if you think about what the 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 definition of orgasm is, the release of muscular tension at rhythmic contractions uh, at point point eight seconds. Whoa. Take that muscular contraction Professor. piece. Uh, you know, sometimes point eight. Point eight seconds. Yeah, that's that's how how your um, when you come, it's at that rhythmic. They've actually timed it. It was Masters and Johnsons who did that. But that's like an average. That's not every person is point eight seconds. So it's. I mean, can you can you control how often you contract? 
Uh, no, but I have used an acceleral gyroscope inside of a vibrator that was inside my vagina and measured my contractions, and they okay. were varying in length. Okay. So there. Well, not, a, not everyone has that outlet. <laughs> shout, out, shout out to the lioness, which is if you, that's something that you're interested in seeing, you can actually visualize nice. your, uh, your vaginal contractions when you have an orgasm with the sex toy called the lioness. I uh, got to use it at this festival called Mothership, and I won the award for Vag of Steel because I had the strongest contractions. Fantastic. Did you get a trophy? I have a certificate. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> we'll put it in the we'll put it in the show notes. Lioness. So so let's say that uh, I'm gonna go back to the muscular contraction. Maybe that's actually strength of contraction and not length, and maybe I was just lying to be like, eh. So I could be wrong. I should check well, that. We're gonna go back and look at the certificate. <laughs> I hope it's framed. Where's it at? <laughs> framed. She keeps it in her wallet. <laughs> in my office. <laughs> So, so, what, were so what were we even talking about? The definition well, we, of an oh, orgasm, and oh. I was and I was nitpicking the the time. Yeah, so she, it just seems odd that it would be the same time for everybody. Well, it's physiology. It's 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 the the way the body is sort of expulsing sort of the uh, emission of, of ejaculation and that contraction of orgasm. But um, the 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 muscular tension piece is what I wanted to focus on because that buildup of muscular tension is what in the body creates sort of this desire to want it to release. It's homeostasis. Um, imagine if in your sexual sort of experiences you created more muscular tension unintentionally. For example, if you're in missionary position as a, as a, a male or a guy uh, and you're holding up your body um, with your arms, you're creating more tension in your upper region, which is going to add to the muscular tension throughout the body. What if you're standing up uh, being sexual and you're creating more tension because you're on a staircase and you have more tension in your quads, your glute muscles, your pelvic muscles, you're creating more tension in that region as well too. So you're actually, if you think about it, physiologically facilitating the the, the tension in your body and that sort of release of tension that's necessary for you to come back to homeostasis. So girl on top if you want to last longer. If you want to last longer, girl on top. So there's like one piece really? right there. And yeah, for... Interesting. For, Unless you're like bottoming or like... For anybody. Doing two, more two, activity from the bottom. Two guys, <laughs> if somebody wants to last longer, two guys, the person who's laying on, uh, who's topping, uh, essentially can lay on a bed and the person on top can ride them. And that person who's laying down... Um, is going to be able to have less muscular tension throughout the body. Um, Do you think that's why for, this is a stereotype, but for a, lo a lot of guys that I know personally, like doggy style often seems to be like the preferred finishing thing because they're doing like the most work and the most contractions potentially. Huh. It could be that, huh. but, but what if we also thought about their own individual arousal. What if like they are butt men and they're most visually oh, yeah. turned on by an ass and so they finish in doggy because that's the one that turns them on the most. I've had clients I think where, also like getting to see your dick go in. Yeah, it's like different a big for each exactly. person. Like I've noticed that. They're like, oh yeah, I can see yeah, and, <laughs> and in porn, there's a lot of POV and that is one of those, those classic angles for right. point of view. Uh, huh. uh, so porn. much context. Yeah. Which is why sexuality stuff is so complex because there's all these things adding to it. There are so many intersections from the mind, the body, from whether it's research, whether it's uh, your own psych personal psychology. Yeah. We talked about premature. What about delayed ejaculation? Which I guess we could call it different things, but I suppose that's lasting longer than you want to. Yeah. Vacuum. Or right? people who feel like they can't come with a partner, like they have to finish themselves off. 
You know, it, it's interesting because even though early ejaculation and delayed ejaculation seem very different, like opposites, opposite ends of the orgasm spectrum. It's both performance anxiety. There's a lot of anxiety with both. And you'll see a lot of like pelvic tension in the delayed ejaculators. You'll see um, a lot of mind wandering, a lot of sort of overthinking, a lot of uh, sort of negative thoughts within the mind, uh, distracting thoughts. You'll see- um, It just expresses itself differently. Yeah. Mm. You'll see a, a, a desensitized sort of experience within the body with the sensation in the body. and. Um, what I've found is that uh, when you can work th therapeutically through some of the anxiety, uh, through some of the fears, the insecurities, um, you can sort of regain a little bit more of that sort of mindfulness, being present in the moment. I actually love uh, recommending for people uh, deep breathing and mindfulness work as a part of my sex therapy practice. I find it it's incredible to relax the brain, and really this is all about how our brain is interacting in sexual uh, situations. You know, our brain is going to be controlling lubrication, it's going to be controlling orgasm, it's going to be controlling erection. I mean. The desire, the the excitement, the orgasm, all these are, are associated with our brain. So we really should be doing things to help with our brain's relaxation and uh, uh, affect regulation. So do you agree that like unless you're at an older age, most of erectile difficulties or ejaculation difficulties are emotional or psychological? You're going to have the majority at younger ages being psychological. Let's say if we're talking about erection difficulties. Um, but as we age... Um, those with penises will find that it typically is commensurate with your age. So about age 40, you'll experience about 40% with ED difficulties. Mm. Uh, age 50, about 50%. Huh. I'm, I'm estimating. It's a little bit higher, but we're mm -hmm. going to say... 60 is about 60, 70 is about 70%. So you're finding that it's going to increase with age. So we do know there's a physiological deterioration with uh, the way our body functions. Mm. That doesn't mean we still can't have pleasure and excitement right. and joy. And like, other creative, awesome things. Right. You know, I had a, a client who was 83. Um, he wanted to work on his, his sexuality and... Uh, he went through a lot. He had a partner who had cancer. He had to kind of shut down his sexuality um, for a long time, taking care of her, and he didn't cheat. And he just wanted to, like, after she passed, he had his mourning period, and he just wanted to, like, experience some sexuality before, like, his life ended. And, and, and he, was a, he was a sweet guy. Um, and so we talked about uh, uh, some of the grief and bereavement, and once he was sort of through that, he really wanted to start dating and start uh, seeing people. And um, we, we utilized a, a surrogate who was very helpful in helping him reawaken and reignite his sexuality and his mm. passion. And, and for and, people out there listening, how does, what does a sexual surrogate do? A sex surrogate is an, uh, a person who's highly trained and have certifications around uh, working with people with sexual concerns to help them overcome some of their sexual difficulties. Um, they they uh, have training with communication. They have training with behavioral techniques, uh, a lot of somatic and massage and touch sort of exercises. So most uh, surrogates will have anywhere from 40 to 50 different techniques they utilize with the clients depending on their concern. And they're really valuable. Essentially, they work with the therapist in order to um, create like a triangular model where the therapist, the client, and the surrogate um, are supporting each other. So the therapist is never with a client and a surrogate. Obviously, that's mm -hmm. separate. Um, because of the touch because involved. Because of the, the touch and the nudity and, and just crossing boundaries. But how many people work on their sexuality in therapy and don't have an opportunity to practice? practice? Yeah, Don't have a, part, a, a patient partner to do it with. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, what I know on Tinder is that they're not that, uh, you know, they're not going to be as supportive as a surrogate with training, you know, the, the, the hookup <laughs> yeah. that you meet that night. So, um, yeah. So th this, this particular client, 
um, discovered that erection was difficult. And that's totally understandable. So we worked with sort of accepting that. But then we dis- we utilized this sex toy. It's called a hot octopus. And a hot octopus is, it, uh, it is mi- intended for a flaccid penis to be placed in- inside of it. It's kind of got a sleeve uh, uh, to it. It's got this circular um, quarter-sized uh, vibration area that does oscillating vibration on the frenulum. And it was pressed up against him. There's also another motor that uh, a, a partner can sit on top of that can like vibrate their clitoris. Uh, and so you can actually experience orgasms with a flaccid penis with this vibration. And he experienced that and he was thrilled. So he may not have experienced a hard on, but he experienced orgasm and ejaculation. And he was totally happy with the touch, with the connection, with the intimacy. And it's like, he worked with what he had and he adjusted and he was appreciative of, of experiencing that. That's so incredible. That takes such a big level of like acceptance around functionality. Yeah. You got to get over your toxic masculine sort of like erection focused perspective that you probably had for 70 plus years. Right. You mentioned something uh, when we were talking about delayed ejaculation that I just would personally like more information on, um, about desensitization or, or, Mm -hmm. or, because something I've noticed in, in, in partners, like I feel like forever is sometimes there's a point where it feels really, really, really good and they're about to come. So they stop themselves from coming like or mul- multiple times sometimes. But then they don't feel anything anymore. Mm-hmm. What's that? I w- I'd have to talk more to that specific person, but I'm it's guessing not that just it, one person. I'm guessing that it's also about the mind as well. Because if you think of where, you know, the five senses are controlled by the brain. And what happens if before orgasm, before ejaculation, we uh, create our own performance anxiety experience? We have our own sort of mental block or uh, discomfort or some anxious sort of thought or experience that sort of redirects our sensation and uh, that neural pathway that opens the door for us to experience sensation. I've also actually found, and this is not so much corroborated by research, um, that people sometimes have like experiences where their sensory uh, sensation is transferred to other areas of the body. And I think it's important for people to discover the different erogenous zones of where your sensory experience um, is at in different, different times of your sexual response cycle. Like a lot of people will experience heightened sensitivity in their nipple area and that stimulation along with the, the, the let's say, penetration for in that example could be what helps a person mm. propel to orgasm. For the delayed ejaculators, I've seen a lot of anal and anus and prostate sort of sensory experience that gets very heightened that helps them with that getting over that uh, uh, ejaculatory hump, if you will. So something like an Aneros prostate massager is incredible for not only helping increase uh, uh, erection uh, possibilities, but also with that sort of uh, ejaculation piece that some delayed ejaculators struggle with. But the toxic masculinity stuff, they're all scared of stuff of their buttholes. I do think it is like a, a mental thing because... I mean, maybe this is a bad example, but in different scenarios, I feel like I can be touched the same way and decide whether or not that's like a Mm -hmm. pleasure I want to be. And sometimes you can't control. Sometimes, Mm -hmm. like especially in assault cases, you might have a physical response that's not what you wanted. But for example, like if someone's touching my breasts or my genitals at the OBGYN, my mind is in a totally right, different right. place versus if I'm like doing that. Depends how hot's the OBGYN. <laughs> Mine is very nice, but I'm not attracted to them. But I feel like if you're con- if you're trying to think of other things in your mind that's like don't come, don't come, mm-hmm. you're kind of trying to desensitize yeah. yourself. Like, oh, th- think of, unless you're into grandmas, like think of your grandma yeah. having sex. It's like a cliche <laughs> thing, like to get yourself from not coming or whatever. Huh. And if you've shut that off, I can just imagine that mm-hmm. then you've shut off the 
possibility for pleasure in that moment mm-hmm. because that's what you were trying to do. Yeah. There's a couple that I worked with a while ago, and they discovered this on their own. It wasn't even a suggestion of mine, and, and uh, that that piece was happening where there was like this sort of right before orgasm, sort of a cutoff, and then they, they like dropped back a few steps when it came to like their, their pleasure and getting close to orgasm, mm-hmm. and what they like were edge do- play. Pl- well, it was unintentional, unintentional. So, so they didn't mean to get well, to not that. Not edge play. It was like uh, edge it's frustration. Edge torture. <laughs> torture. Edge torture, which can also be play. <laughs> not fun torture. Okay. What they learned together was that um, he could, he did experience a lot of sensory sort of uh, uh, difference, you know, if you will. So when she was using her Hitachi on her clitoris while they were having intercourse, that when he was getting close to, to coming, that he would basically grab her the Hitachi and borrow it. They, they negotiated it, and he would put it up against his balls, and he would have like mind-blowing orgasms because yeah, that extra that vibration really helped him get over that pump, that peak. And they just negotiated. They kind of just worked together and sort Sounds of. Sounds awesome. And it worked really well for them. And was she okay? Hitachi. Yeah, get another one. I was like, was she okay giving away her Hitachi? Like, <laughs> I know, what do you mean? Her like, I'm so close. Oh, let me take that. <laughs> well, which is sometimes fun, but. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It'd be nice if they both had their own. (laughs) It's a big Um, investment. Also, ejaculating without orgasm. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about that? Mm -hmm. Is that in the same uh, ballpark? Yeah, so uh, so male multiple orgasms, is that what you're talking about? No, multiple orgasms are, I just remember in high school, um, my boyfriend would come and not realize it Mm -hmm. for like a little period of time. You mean ejaculate or have the actual contractions? No, 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 ejaculate and not realize it. So you can. There's a difference between ejaculating and And, feeling the sensation of orgasm. The the people that can separate ejaculation and orgasm can typically hold back their ejaculation and then have orgasm, and then like they can build up their their uh, arousal again and have another orgasm. But what they're doing is they're holding back the ejaculatory response. Uh, What you're describing is a little different, where they can. Some people, and this is actually a very small small sort of percentage of people, can ejaculate and still remain erect. Most, oh, yeah. Most people, we have the resolution, most uh, penis owners really? will go flaccid after that ejaculation. And Would you say also, though, that there's some people wait, who maybe really? are anxious and so they don't fully feel in the pleasure moment, so they do ejaculate, but they're not experiencing pleasure, and then they go flaccid? Absolutely, yeah. So many differentiations. I'm like, I'm like replaying like all these like penis orgasms that I've witnessed <laughs> in my life, like think about if they go soft after. I don't know. You know, there's a, a famous sex researcher named Alfred Kinsey, and he uh, had, had a statement that's, that's pretty popular in our field. He said that the only constant in human sexuality is diversity. <laughs> and it's so true. When, I love that. With pleasure, with bodies, with uh, you know, our, our experiences, and it really is true. Something we've talked about in the past on the podcast a lot is just how people are judged for their sexuality or jobs or sexual behaviors. And something that at least I've noticed is... Um, as a woman in the field of sexology, I get a certain type of stigma, but I'm wondering if and where and how you get stigmatized as a male sex therapist. You know, that's a great question. And um, I would never, ever uh, suggest that I, I, I experience some of the disadvantages of pe- that people of color experience in our field or uh, women experience in our field or individuals of different sort of gender identities or orientations. Um, because I'm cis and I'm male, uh, it does afford me a lot of privileges and, and maybe a little bit more, um, a little bit less of the discriminative and stigma uh, experience, you know, because of that. It's interesting though, because you, I don't want to define what you are, but Chavez, like you are te- technically a person of color, mm-hmm. but maybe you don't feel like you present as that. 
you know, for, for myself, I don't experience, uh, I'm a light-skinned uh, Latin man. Mm-hmm. And so that, uh, I think, affords just a, a little more of a sheltered experience when it comes to some of the difficulties that other people, let's say like a darker-skinned Latin man might experience. Yeah. Um, I think our field has a long way to go when it comes to not only integration, but diversity, equity, and just a simulation of, of acceptance of that diversity. And, and we are a very white-centric, cis-centric uh, field. And I think little by little, we're all trying to... Um, remedy that and just create more space for those who are, and I'm seeing this in, in, in the field. I'm seeing it with presentations, with conferences, with conference uh, 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 themes that they're integrating more of like a, a diversity when it comes to sexuality. And that could be both from a race perspective, from a religious perspective, from a gender identity and from an orientation and from a sexual minority taboos perspective. Um, there's a lot of work to be done because, uh, you know, we have, really done a lot of work with male sexuality, with white sexuality, with cisgender sexuality, whether it's research or therapy. And, and it's time for us to spread our wings. It really is. And on that note, thank you so much for joining us. That's such a wonderful place to end. Um, I want to talk to you more about stuff, but if people want to check out talks that you've done, hire you, like... How can people find you? Sure. I'm on social media. Uh, my Instagram and Twitter is at Hernando underscore Chavez. Uh, and my website is www.drhernandochavez.com. Oh, I should have been calling you doctor this whole time. Thank you so much oh, for joining us. I like dropping the doctor title. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, I thought you like professor. I like all the titles. <laughs> Any, anyone in power. You just like the power play. You like uh, like, you like the submissive role, yeah. I can tell. <laughs> and if you want to keep up to date on all the things that we're doing here at Sluts and Scholars, you can follow us on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Sluts Scholars, and as always, we love your emails at slutsandscholars at gmail.com. Bye. Bye.